Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 14th chapter of Acts. Uh, we will read uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we will be working through the rest of the chapter this morning in the sermon. So hear now God's Word. Now it happened at Iconium that they went there together. Uh, they, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. We have been working through the book of Acts and hearing the story. Really, it's the, we often call it the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's the Acts of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. We end the Gospel of Luke with Jesus being raised from the dead and appearing to his disciples and others. And then we immediately go to the book of Acts, also written by Luke. And there in the first chapter, we see Jesus, the, the risen Jesus, meeting with his disciples and giving them a commission and, and telling them that they, that in fact he is going to expand his rule and expand his kingdom. That's what the book of Acts is about, is we get a, a picture of how the church got started, how it expanded, and, and these are the acts of Jesus operating from his throne through his people and beginning to spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. He did it through the church, which is his body. He is still the head of that body, and he continued, he continued to work through history to bring us to this point. It is his story, and the great news is he's continuing to do it today through you and through me, through his church. The expansion of his kingdom is not finished, but it will be. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So as we left our story last week, we were told that Paul and Barnabas were shaken, but they were in no way deterred. In Acts 13, verses 49 through 52, to bring us into today's part of this story, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up, uh, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women of the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were shaking in their boots. No. They were, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Nothing happened here that Jesus had not already warned of. He had promised them success. He had promised them victory, but he had also warned them of opposition and of persecution. As Paul and Barnabas will tell the church, churches in this chapter, in verse 22, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So the commission of Jesus that he gave in Acts 1 is being fulfilled which is that the gospel was going to reach the nations of the world, to the ends of the earth. 
It would start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we started last week with the first formal missionary journey. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch converted and Cornelius converted. We've seen the expansion to the Gentiles and to Antioch, but now it is going even further. So Paul and Barnabas head out about 100 miles southeast of Pisidia, Antioch, to the ancient city of Iconium, which is today is Turkey's fourth largest city, uh, Konya. At this time, it was still a Greek city, and it was an agricultural center. It was where there's a lot of commerce, so there's a lot of coming and going, which is a great strategic place for the spread of the gospel. People come there, they hear the gospel, they go back to their place, and churches get started and planted, and, and we see how God is moving his people uh, to accomplish these things. Uh, so again, reading those first three verses, now it happened at Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and the Greeks, believed. Remember, there were, at the synagogue, there were God-fearers. These are the Greeks who believed but were not, had not become Jews, but they were there present and listening. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so they go to the synagogue first, again, because it's a strategic place where many people uh, assembled on a weekly basis. Uh, And since Paul and Barnabas themselves were Jews, they had a right to attend and also an opportunity to speak. This was a group that was already familiar with what we'd call religious vocabulary. To talk about God and redemption and sin and, and uh, the Messiah and so forth. So that was a, a great place to begin. Paul also understood what he will describe later in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. That the gospel is the power of God uh, uh, to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If we think about what Jesus said in Acts 1 about uh, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, well, of course, God's already been working among the Jewish nation. He gave them his law, gave them all the ceremonies, all of which pointed to Christ, right? They were the caretakers. And so that's why he says we're going to start here. We're going to start at the center of the circle, but then it's going to expand out to include the whole world. Regardless of the makeup of the audience, uh, these guys, Paul and Barnabas, always bore witness to the word of his grace. That was the central thing. And so at the word, as the word of God is preached, of course, there, like now, there are always a variety of responses. Same message, that'd be the same thing true today. Some will say, man, that, that really spoke to me, moved me, others... It uh, goes in one ear and out the other. But in some cases, we're going to see in this case that there's also hostile responses. And so uh, as we continue here, as the word is preached, uh, it's interesting that the word translated the unbelieving Jews, that word unbelieving literally means disobedient. They didn't obey the gospel. We don't often talk that way. So it's not just about believing, but, but the reason is in the Bible, the Bible ties faith and obedience together. If you, how do we know you believe? You obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. What would you say about your children? Say, well, I believed you, I just didn't do what you said. 
No, you didn't believe me. So belief and obedience go together. And so these unbelieving or disobedient uh, Jews rise up against them. Now, some believe, others stirred up trouble. A slanderous campaign was started to try to undermine the message of Paul and Barnabas. This was deliberate, it was false, it was malicious. And verse 3 implies, it's interesting, look at verse 3 again. Because of those malicious things that were happening, therefore, they stayed a long time. We've got some cleanup work to do. So they weren't in a hurry to get out of there. Uh, and so, uh, they, what does it say? They spoke boldly. They weren't afraid. They weren't shrinking away. This emboldened them to speak more. So we live in a time when many evangelical Christians think that it is our duty to never give offense to anyone. The chief attribute of a Christian, according to this view, is to be nice. Never offend anyone. You should be the nicest person in the room all the time. Just a sweet, sweet person. Never give offense. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what we see from Jesus. That's not what we see from the apostles. That's not what we see here. Now, we're, we're not to go out and deliberately give offense. We are not trying to be offensive in our manner. But the truth is offensive. If you're denying the truth, if you're disobedient to the truth, you don't want to hear the truth. But wokeness has neutered us in the evangelical world. Have you noticed that most anything can be said, though? But if you were to mention Jesus, everything changes. I remember I, along with several teenagers and grown men, worked at a large plant nursery when I was in high school. I would work during the school year, after school, and on Saturdays. And those guys could talk and laugh about some of the nastiest things with complete comfort, it appeared. But I remember on one occasion, I walked in on about five guys who were talking about something totally inappropriate, and one of them said, Hey, we better be quiet. Preacher's here. That's what they called me then. And I, um, or they called me pastor. I said, I'll leave, but Jesus will still be here when I'm gone. And one of the older men said, oh, man, don't say that. (laughs) Um, Try mentioning Jesus in your university classroom in a class discussion and see what happens. No doubt Paul and Barnabas were accused of not being nice men, but Jesus said, woe to you. Woe to you when men speak well of you. Verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. That's one of the things the gospel does. It does divide. Jesus said he came to bring a sword. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, that is Paul and Barnabas, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, uh, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So they got out of Dodge. Some of these folks were really worked up. 
Imagine what they would have done if they had the internet. Instead, some Gentiles and Jews, along with the city authorities then, were planning violence against Paul and Barnabas. And so being tipped off, they headed down the road to Lystra, which was a much more blue-collar town. Less educated, uh, more superstitious, actually, as we'll see. In verse 8, and in Lystra, a certain man was strength, without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently uh, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now the healing of this crippled man should remind us of something, right? Early in the book of Acts, Peter did the same thing at the temple with another man who had been lame from birth. Both men were known to have been crippled since their birth. They had never walked. It was well known. They were beggars. People saw them all the time. They knew exactly who they were. That's why it created such a row in Jerusalem. And it's going to do the same thing here, but with a little different kind of reaction. So Peter and Paul both looked at them intently. So Peter in Jerusalem, Paul now here. Uh, and he, at Lystra, and he looks at this man, basically he stares at him. And with a loud voice, he says, stand up. Imagine, he says it, so everybody's, it's got everybody's attention, right? This was not done in a corner. And both the men who were healed not only stood up. You, we think somebody hadn't ever walked, kind of getting up and very slowly trying to take a step. They both not only stood up and walked, they both leapt. Whether in Jerusalem or in a pagan land, the same gospel was at work. However, the reactions of the two crowds were quite different. Verse 11, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So let let me give you a little historical context here uh, regarding Lystra that will help us understand their reaction. John Stott uh, described it this way. The crowd's superstitious and even fanatical behavior is hard to comprehend, but some local background throws light on it. About 50 years previously, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated in his um, uh, Metamorphoses an ancient local legend. The supreme god Jupiter, Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, or Hermes, once visited the hill, hill country of Phrygia, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were, re, were rebuffed thousands of times. At last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple called Philemon and Baucis, who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. And it's reasonable to suppose both that the Lystrian 
uh, Lystran people knew this story about their neighborhood and that if the gods were ever to revisit their district, they were anxious to not suffer the same fate as the inhospitable Phrygians. Apart from the literary evidence in Ovid, two inscriptions and a stone altar have been discovered near Lystra, which indicate that Zeus and Hermes were worshipped together as local deities. So that's the context. This is no longer Jerusalem. This is not the synagogue. They have stepped into a full pagan culture. Totally, the gospel's totally foreign. Verse 14, but when the apostles... Barnabas and Saul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of the same nature as you. Paul and Barnabas move immediately to try and correct the misrepresentation of the crowd. And we've seen this before, right? When the apostles went... I want to be sure that everyone knows that what they are saying and that what they are doing is from the Lord and not from them. In Acts 10, 25-26, when Cornelius met Peter for the first time, he fell down before him to worship Peter, fell at his feet, but Peter lifted him up immediately and said, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Verse 15, and... They preached, and we preached to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. In that, he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. It takes a fair amount of imagination here, but we're supposed to use that to imagine this scene, this multitude of people, a crowd, a a mob, if you will. You'll recall that Paul's approach in the synagogue was to point to the scriptures, but now He's going to adapt his, he's not going to change the content of his message, but he is going to adapt to speak to a different audience, take a different approach, adapting the same message to pagans by calling their attention, not to the Old Testament, they weren't familiar with the Old Testament, but rather to the natural world around them. He'll do the same thing in in Acts 17 when he speaks to the Areopagus in Athens And so he calls them to stop looking at useless things. They had all these idols. And rather to look to the living creator of all things. Wouldn't you rather worship a living God than that stone image that you have at your house? And so he tells them that on the one hand, God has in the past allowed nations to walk in their own ways, to do their own thing. Nevertheless, he said, there has always been an inescapable witness of the true God. Think about Romans 1. Paul will write later. In verses 19 through 23, that which may be known about God is manifest to them. It's obvious. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power his, and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse, without an apologetic, no defense. You didn't give us enough evidence, God, that you existed. Nope. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or vain in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. Remember he said, stop worshiping those empty images. Useless. But they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Do we have that still going on around us now? Yeah. Different forms. They may not have an actual carved image sitting in the house representing those things, but ideas are images too. And we've exchanged the truth, that which is known. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is made in the image of God, and you know it. You can't escape it. This didn't just happen. This is not an accident. You are not an accident. They are not an accident, and they know it, and you know it. And as images of God, we've been put in God's world. You know this world was made and created and has order and purpose, and you know it, and you can deny it all day long, and you know, we don't know where it came from, we don't know what it's here for, we don't know, we don't know, we think it just happened. That's called insanity. That's what Romans 1 describes, and that's the situation Paul and Barnabas are dealing with here as well. This brings us to the question of how do we find common ground with unbelievers? Here they are among pagans. Okay, Since God is the creator of all things, and he sovereignly controls every event, and he, and he clearly reveals himself in every created thing, therefore it is utterly impossible that anything is neutral. There is no neutral ground. There is no territory. There is no facet of reality where man is not confronted by the claims of God. He can deny them. He can try to change the subject. He can try to numb his mind and his body. And he can get busy with other things. But he cannot escape that constant witness and testimony. This perspective guarantees that there is common ground between the believer and the unbeliever. There is nowhere to stand in the world, not, not one square inch, not even in the world of thought, that isn't God's territory. Rather than agreeing with the sinner's conception, ordering, or interpretation of his experience, the Christian seeks his repentance. Repentance in how he sees the world and how he sees himself. Our approach should be that of Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. That's the only hope the world has. It won't be in a political party. It won't be in a campaign. It won't be in some other philosophy. This is the only hope. This is the good news. 
There is something of great significance in common between the believer and the unbeliever. They are both, irrespective of their saved or lost conditions, both creaturely images of God. Turn out all the lights, put them in a dark room, turn off all the sound. If all they were left with was themselves, there is a witness. Dr. Cornelius Van Til says that we are, quote, assured of a point of contact in the fact that every man is made in the image of God and has impressed upon him the law of God. In that fact alone, we may rest secure with respect to the point of contact problem. For the fact makes men always accessible to God. Only by thus finding the point of contact in man's sense of deity that lies underneath his own conception of self-consciousness as ultimate can we be both true to Scripture and effective in reasoning with the natural man. So, like Paul, we take we begin with people where they are and we bring them to and take them to where they ought to be in Christ. Remember in Acts 17, he's going to say they're groping in darkness. Now, verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch, remember they left Antioch 100 miles away, and they were after them, and they got word of it, and they left. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed, departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Amazing story here. So the crowd that previously plotted and tried to stone Paul and Barnabas followed them to Lystra where they tried to, they executed their plan. They thought they had actually executed Paul. This was not a judicial execution. This was a lynching. The next day, we're told this remarkable thing. From presumed dead... Quote, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Later Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God uh, and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So with amazing courage, he goes back into the very city which had rejected him, and he stays the night there. The next day, I remember, he's left for dead. The next day, he and Barnabas travel about 60 miles, or they head out on a trip. I doubt they covered that in one day. 60 miles to Derby. He walked, they walked from here to Carthage. So trials, brothers and sisters, are not proof that the opposition is winning. There are always temporary setbacks in every battle, but we have been promised, and Paul understood this, Barnabas understood this, the ultimate victory. 
For whatever is born of God, John writes, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Paul again, uh, the apostle, excuse me, the apostle Peter would later write, Beloved, do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing was happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Paul surely remembered the words of Jesus that he spoke to Ananias. Remember on the road to Damascus, after he's been struck blind, and no doubt Ananias relayed this to Paul. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go and take Paul, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned. You think they took the back route? We want to avoid all those places where we had trouble, right? No, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attila, Attilia. Uh, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So Luke reports that many disciples were made in Derby. Perhaps Gaius of Derby, who we read about in Acts 20, verse 4, was one of them. Now they're going to head back to Antioch and retrace their steps in spite of the danger. Through the three Galatian cities they had previously evangelized, Lystra, Iconium, uh, and um, Pisidian Antioch. And Paul would later remind Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire. Is that you? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. At the end of this first missionary journey, they made a round trip of about a thousand miles. I know we have some folks here today from Pensacola. Walked there and back. That's how far they went. Paul and Barnabas did three things for the newly established mission churches. First, they encouraged them to remain faithful. Uh, to the gospel teaching which they had received from them. It was likely a recognizable body of doctrine, the central beliefs, if you will. We get some idea of this from Paul's letters. God's the creator of all things. Jesus Christ, his only son who died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and he will return. And no doubt they learned about the indwelling of the Spirit, salvation of God, the importance of the church, the inheritance that we have in heaven, 
These are the truths that we now have embodied in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. So today when we recite the Nicene Creed, I want you to think about that. So here Paul and Barnabas said, here are the things you need to hang on to. These are the central core things you need. I have no doubt they wrote them down so they could learn them. Second, they appointed elders or overseers. Notice this was both local and plural. So there was doctrine and discipline. There was instruction and shepherding. And then third, most important in a way, was divine provision. Paul and Barnabas committed the church and her elders to the Lord. This is his work. And with this foundation, there's no doubt that each church developed their own unique culture. I think that is a little point I want to emphasize this morning. Because likewise, in our mission work, we're not trying to make every church look like our church. Missionary Roland Allen wrote in 1912, We desire to see Christianity established in foreign cultures, putting on a foreign dress, and developing forms of beauty and glory. It's a really interesting statement. Each expression is another facet of glory, a reflection upon Christ, of how he works everywhere in all kinds of situations with all kinds of people, all races, all backgrounds, all socioeconomic differences, every place the gospel goes. And it's going to look a little different. It's going to have a little different flavor. And that's great. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So now they're back. It's important to see how the church, in this case the local church at Antioch, was engaged and involved and necessary for this missionary outreach. As we meet here today... Our missionary, Pastor Oleg Volkov, is ministering the gospel today in Smartland, Uzbekistan, where he is strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. This work in Uzbekistan could not exist without this church and other churches who have joined with us in this work. We pray. We send money. We do things for them they can't do. And by the way, they do things for us we can't do. And God orchestrated all of this. We couldn't have done this. The kingdom of God is expanding as the gospel advances into a place that not one of us could ever reach. Not by ourselves. We have had and we will have again reports from Pastor Volkov regarding all that God has done with them and how he has opened the door of faith to, in this case, the Muslims. They're building a church building in a place that didn't have one. Not one. We got them on every corner around here. Thanks to others who came before us. In other words, the acts of Jesus through the church continue today, right now, 
We have the duty, we have the privilege, we have the honor of being a part of this worldwide mission to take the gospel to the world. And moreover, we have been promised by God himself that it will succeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect plan for rescuing your people and for the amazing way you demonstrate your wisdom and power through the body of Christ throughout the world. Thank you for allowing us to participate in this glorious redemptive work as we both feel the effects of the gospel in our own lives as well as seeing how you uh, use ordinary men and women to advance your kingdom. Use us again this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. William Carey, who lived uh, between 1761 and 1834, was an English Christian missionary, a particular Baptist minister, and he was known as the father of modern missions. And he wrote this. He said, When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial, God's cause will triumph. And so we come to the Lord's table each week to remember our calling in Christ. We're not, we didn't just, we're not here because we just want to go to heaven. We're here. If that was the case, we'd just be in heaven, right? God would just say, okay, you're in. No, we're here. And he's called us to work here. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're not our own. We have been bought with a price, purchased with the blood of Christ. He has called us to serve, which means he has called us to live. He's called us to speak of Christ. This too will cost us something. But that cost will yield great dividends. After Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim, along with four others, were killed by the AUKUS tribe that they went to evangelize. Here's what she wrote. To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has his plan and purpose in all things. The prayers of the widows themselves are for the AUKUS. We look forward to the day when these savages will join us in Christian praise Plans were promptly formulated for continuing the work of the martyrs. May we all renew our commitment to be true followers of Christ, that we might see the continuing advancement of Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He is our Redeemer and our Mediator, without whom we have no standing with you. Indeed, we have been washed by His blood, and though our sins were as scarlet, we are now white as snow. For His sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. As you have instructed us, we pray, Lord, and ask that you would bless our resting and our feasting. We cast, now cast all of our cares upon you, for you care for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.